Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss quiet practices and quality resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. On our last episode, I began a conversation with Dr. Jason Keyes, who is an adjunct professor of biblical studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and at California Baptist University, also a pastor in the great state of Louisiana. And we started talking about what it meant to pursue a PhD in the pastorate, why you would want to do that, what that looks like. Um, And if you are at all interested in that or you're curious just about um, a PhD program, especially an American modular PhD program, I would definitely go listen to that. But I also wanted to talk to Dr. Keyes about his work in the Revelation, the Apocalypse of John. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the rest of that conversation for your listening pleasure. Dr. Keyes, you have been Working in the Revelation for a while, I know that your your uh, supervisor, Doctor Thor Madsen, is uh, really big on calling it the Revelation. The I think, Revelation. I think you lose points for not just calling it Apocalypse. You um, do. You know, you, it has to be the. You have to yeah. have that article. Yeah, it would have been. Oh. It would have been a lot more erudite of you, though, if you would. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you would have gone with Apocalypse, hey. I'm just saying. Uh, uh, I think I did at some point, but really? you know, he made me. Yeah, he made he me. He made you D change to the revelation. Yeah, well, I mean, Revel- which know, is fine. I mean, it, it gave me an extra word. You know, <laughs> that's the way I looked at it. That's right. One I've more get word. This page limit. I get that one word, and every time I said <laughs> revelation, I had to put the on it. So that's perfect. I mean, it, it helped in the long run. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Um, no, that's that's fantastic. So you were working trying to identify the ideal reader of Revelation. <laughs> what do you mean by that phrase? Yeah, I what I I mean by that phrase is is kind of what is used in uh, the canonical approach, the canonical methodology of of Selhammer and Childs and, and now uh, Chris Seitz and uh, even Matt Emerson at Oklahoma uh, Baptist University. I hope that's where he is. Yeah, um, yeah, he's he's, he's yeah. OBU. I think it's where he is. <laughs> yeah, it's over you. Um, it's just that we're, whenever you read the scriptures. The author is trying, I think, uh, to give you help, in a sense, to become what we call the ideal reader, or, or the one who is able to read this book and understand it. Um, and so when, when you read Revelation, or excuse me, when you read the Revelation, there you go. Um, there's so much that goes on, especially after, I mean, after you hit chapter 5, and you know, the Lamb opens up the, the scroll and the seals, and just... I mean, literally, hell breaks loose on Earth to an extent. I mean, you know, all these judgments and, and stuff are coming. Um, within Revelation itself, I, I'm, I'm convinced that John embeds for us a way to read the book that uh, I don't want to say that the church has missed for thousands of years, because that's, that would be elitist of me, and it would be uh, wrong, right? Um, but all these images and, and all of the illusions that he uses, he, he uses a lot for the Old Testament, right? And, and even in my research of, of doing the, you know, the state of the question of, of, of the book itself and going through and seeing all these different interpretations, um, across the board of what I found, whether the, the people believe that, you know, that this happens just like it did, or this is just a story or a fable, everybody across the board is in agreement that he uses Old Testament illusions, right? And so one aspect of, of how you could read Revelation to become the ideal reader is by is simply by knowing the Old Testament. Um, but there was a, 
there was this uh, old Testament, or excuse me, a New Testament scholar named uh, R.H. Charles in one of his commentaries in the ICC, the International Critical Commentary. He mentioned, and it was just like it was just off offhand, like something like fifty different allusions or possibilities that John, or I would I would say John, the author, uh, makes with other New Testament documents or different New Testament texts. I mean, I found this in, in Matt's in his Matt's dissertation. Uh, it was just a footnote that uh, Charles had, had said this and that nobody's done any work on it. And if, if an argument could be made, then if John did use this, then an argument could be made for a specific reading pattern or, or how I would phrase it to be the ideal reader of Revelation. And so what I did for my work was I tracked down all, I, I got Charles' work and I just tracked down all of what he suggested that John may have used from you know, the Gospels, to the Epistles, to Pauline Epistles, to um, some of the Catholics as well, Catholic Epistles, um, that he, he referenced, and he uses within his own work. And so when I when I did that, and I looked, and I read, and I researched, I thought, if, if, if this is true, if John is really using these texts or these documents, or these words or these allusions, what I call the verbal, verbal connections, um, then the argument could be made that the ideal reader of the Revelation is is one who knows his Old and New Testaments together, hmm. right? I, I'm convinced that sometimes we we make the book to be more difficult than what it is because we try to figure out exactly what this image may mean, you know, or or today, or, or we pick up our newspaper and like, oh, you know, this. China has an army of X amount of people. That's what's in Revelation. Then these must be China, you know, or, or something like that, right? And that's not, I'm not convinced that's, that's at all is what John is wanting us to do. And that's not at all how he's wanting us to read this work. He's wanting us to focus on everything else that's, especially where it's located within the canon, everything else that has preceded it. And so if we want to understand Revelation, then we need to know what Genesis through Jude says. Um, you know, and, and so that, that, that falls in line with uh, Salhammer and, and Child and Sites and many other Old Testament scholars. And really the reason why I chose that is um, I was I was introduced to this canonical approach or canonical method, however you want to call that term, uh, back in college again with my Old Testament professor, Mike Shepard, who is at Cedarville University now. Um, he studied with Salhammer. And so I was kind of introduced to it there. When I get to Southwestern, uh, I'm with another Old Testament guy who studied with, with Selhammer and, and Mike at Southeastern at the same time. And I began to notice that what, what they were doing for the Old Testament was not being done for the New Testament. And it was, you know, probably for various reasons that we could discuss later on if you want. Um, and so my goal at that point was, okay, then how, how can I do this for the New Testament? Like, what would it look like for somebody to take this methodology and to put it into use in a New Testament book? And some people have done it. I don't want to say n not anybody has done it. Like Matt Emerson has done a lot of work. Uh, Robert Wall uh, at uh, and Jeffrey Niehaus at um, Seattle Pacific have done a lot of it, or, or Zusa Pacific, one of those two. They they've done a lot of work on it. Um, Daryl, um, oh man, I'm drop, I'm losing his name too. Lockett, uh, he's a Midwestern grad from he did his MDiv at Midwestern. He's a Biola. He's done a lot of work on it too. But nobody's done it for Revelation. And so when I found that footnote about from, from Matt's work, um, 
about the the connection of the New Testament, I said, "Man, okay, this this is where it could this is where we could play with it here. We could see how it would work." Um, and so that's, and that's basically what I did. So you know, it took me what two hundred and sixty something pages to say you need to know your Old and New Testament to be able to fully <laughs> understand Revelation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's well, basically what it comes down to. But I mean, for, for good reason, right? I so obviously allusions, echoes you know, whatever to the old Testament right. are, you know, there's lots of work on that, lots of discussion on that in, in revelation, but, um, connecting to the rest of the new Testament. I mean, I've maybe, and, and I, I've read every major commentary on revelation, mm-hmm. at least in particular sections, but I, you know, not, not as extensive research by any means, but I, the impression that I get from that bit of study is that, um, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to say, you know, maybe the synoptic, you know, the Jesus' yeah. Olivet discourse maybe is coming yeah, out, especially right. like in the breaking of the <clears throat> seals or whatever. There are some clear linguistic connections there that, you know, this author must have known and intentionally incorporated, whatever. Um, and again, right. a lot of that's going to depend on whether or not you believe him when he says, my name's John and I saw these things. Right. Um, you know, is does he mean what he says there? Can we trust what he says there? And I would say yes to both. But putting that aside even for a second, I have seen maybe other than just those, yeah, Jesus's eschatological discourses, maybe no reference to other other New Testament works being incorporated. Mm-hmm. So I would I would I would think you'd have to do a good bit of argumentation here. So what steps you do, do you have to take? I mean, it, 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 here I'm trying to get you to summarize, you know, several years yeah. of work, right? Um, and that's yeah. always always the trick is to <laughs> try, to, try yeah. to get you to boil it down and then kind of bring it out a little bit without getting lost in the weeds completely. But, I mean, what, what kind of steps does one have to take to, to demonstrate that John actually does use or in this vision saw things that directly mm-hmm. correlate? to the yeah. rest of the New Testament besides just these eschatological discourses. Yeah, that was the that was chapters four and five, and that was probably the the hardest part of this of this work. Um what I did for there is I took uh, Bill's model, so great uh G. K. Bill's from mm-hmm. his commentary on, on Revelation. Um what he did in, in that work was for the Old Testament, right? So he he gave the cat like three different categories of clear, probable, and possible of, of different connections that could be made from that John's using to the Old Testament. So he categorizes them into three different sections. I I just took that, what he did. I mean it it was there, it worked, and I thought, well this I mean this thing could work. So I just I borrowed his model. And I said, All right, so and he, you know, however he defines clear and problem possible, that's, that's just what I did. Like, if it's clear, it's almost a, he would say a direct quotation or direct illusion, and that's that's what I did. Probable, it was just kind of, okay, it looks like it could be, but the, the answer is not as definitive. Possible is the least likely, and then I added a fourth that there's there's no clear connection, because there were some I, I thought that just that doesn't seem right. So I took that model. And Charles's work, um, he didn't really highlight a lot of um, like major sections or direct quotations. It was just for some of them, there was just like two or three words or two or three references or you know different words or different themes. So what I would, what I did for every fifty example is I I had to set that section or that verse or that image within its proper context within the chapter. And then I went to whatever New Testament thing that Charles said it may happen. 
whether it was the synoptics or whether it was Paul or, or you know, the Catholics, and then I set it in that, that proper context as well. And then I just compared them. And I did that 50 times. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a lot that I, I argued um, that I believe that, yeah, there, it seems like there are some that it very well could be that John is using distinct words. So, like, you know, for example, it's the, the greeting in chapter 1, verse 4, grace to you in peace. Well, I mean, who does that sound like? Well, it's, it's Paul, right? Paul uses that greeting all throughout his, his letters. Now, the argument could be made... Um, well, this is just the, the customary greeting. Well, yeah, I mean, it very well could be, and if it is, then that, that's fine. But as a confessing evangelical, I also don't take out the fact that the Holy Spirit is also working within the author as well, um, and that a, connections are being made in that sense, too, you know, so within the greeting itself. I mean, there's, a, there's another, I'm trying to skim through it, um, that Christ is the prototokos, you know, the firstborn from the dead. That John says that in the very beginning, verse 5, I think it is. And, you know, who else uses that exact word in that exact way? What's well, Paul in Colossians one fifteen again? So there, there are some, I think, it, it's very plausible that either John knew of the text itself, or he knew of how one of the apostles would put it maybe in conversation, you know, and again, this is something you can't prove definitively. Like I, we can't say that John had a copy of Matthew in his hand, or he had a copy of Colossians in front of him, but the images, I mean, they look like they're there. So, um, you know, like revelation one, um, seven, when Christ is, you know, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. You know, that's the Daniel, that's the Daniel son of man, Daniel seven seven thirteen. That's also used in Matthew twenty four thirty, and the words are almost the same. Um, to where the it doesn't seem like at that point with that that John is being dependent upon Daniel, but the context of what is happening within those two sections, they're the same. You know, that Jesus is, you know, is going to return, he's going to rule over the world, and he's going to initiate the, the destruction of, of, the, of the world, and who I call the earth dwellers throughout the Revelation. Um, mm. And so it, it seems like it's, it's very plausible that John was familiar with, or he at least knew what was going on with the other apostles in their writings, maybe. Sure. Uh, and you also have to remember, too, that another thing that I had to argue— because you can you say New Testament when the New Testament wasn't formed then either, uh, and so that was that was something else I had to argue for that yeah you can in a sense because of where it's located within the canon and how you understand canon depicts on whether you can use that word or not. And Revelation ending the canon is is no accident either, right? I mean within the again within the big scope of things the, the Holy Spirit is you know the one who's guiding and all this and putting the books where he wants them. But, the, I mean, Revelation ends the canon where it is for a specific reason, right? It's, I mean, it's the end. It's it, it's it. Everything is gone by the end of the book, <laughs> you know, and everything begins again. And so what I found just within the, the study of the different canons that were formed, like Sinaiticus and, and Vaticanus and um, Alexandrinus and Ephraimi um, Rescriptus and CO4, uh, Revelation and all those ordered canon lists always appear at the end. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there are some other books that, that may go on with it, like Barnabas or The Shepherd of Hermes or something like that, or Clements. But it always ends. It's always located at the end, and that's it's for a reason. Sure. Um, yeah, early Christian understanding is that this is there's there's a sense of finality. Um, so tell yeah. tell me this then. Do you did you find it necessary to take a position on dating here? So um, now, yeah, I mean, I would think the way you're talking, you're thinking, okay, this is in, in the '90s. This is Domitian, not a pre seventy neuronic thing. Um, mm-hmm. Just you know, other books, John's own epistles and things like that. We're going to likely give them a later date. And so, if you're thinking this is uh, at the end of all things, as you title the dissertation with a nod to Lord of the Rings. Um, God yep. bless you for that. <laughs> now tell me, did Dr. Deucing make you do that? <laughs> no, he didn't. Um, I know he's an avid he, Tolkien fan. He is an avid Tolkien. I, and you know, I, I got to, I had the chance to work with him for two or three years now at the program. Um, he didn't, but he, he liked that nod too. Um, Good. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if Dr. Matson caught it or not. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, he may have, but he, we didn't. Really if he's the it. biggest Tolkien nerd on the planet, I don't think I would ever know about it personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, guys in a different world, um, in a lot of good ways, but tell me, yeah. so, so back, back to the point though, did you find it yeah, necessary yeah. to take a position or you're, are you staking your claim more on these canon lists or maybe somewhere in between? Yeah, I, I didn't take, I didn't have to take a specific date for it. Sure. Um, just because I'm focused, I'm, I'm not focused on that, right? I'm focused on where it is within the canon itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I had to read through that, and I, I tend to favor kind of a later date, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found in the research is that when, when the focus became so much on the datings, then what happened during that dating time is, in my opinion, superimposed upon the text. Mm-hmm. To fully understand, or fully to understand exactly what what the author may be saying or may not be saying. Sure. Uh, one one example was um, the heavenly courtroom scenes in chapters four and five that um, it, it mirrored a Roman court scene, you know, and you had this group over here, and and they were the place of the you know the elders, or you know the seraphim were mem- uh, mirrors of something else. And and my point was, I think that. I think doing that, it misses the point of the text itself, right? There's a reason why these things are. Like, could John have mirrored that? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he could have, but this is what he's seen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those images, so the elders and the seraphim, are, are playing a role that and I think goes back to the Old Testament itself, right? So, so we shouldn't... So anyway, so all that to say is I, I didn't give too much credence to the date because I was more concerned with the, the text of, of the book itself and where it was found uh, within the canon. Sure. So then historical background, generally Greco-Roman influence and maybe parody, things like that. Did mm-hmm. Are there any particular points where that was a big factor in your research, in your writing? Or is that, like you said, is that mostly kind of uh, beside the point for what you're doing here? Yeah, for, for my for my work, that was kind of more beside the point. And, and that's where the, that's where the canonical approach gets the, the, the biggest punch from as well. You just, you know, you're neglecting all of the, the Greco Roman world or you're neglecting the ancient Near East. And I, I get that. Um, and, you know, to an extent, you know, you are, but also I, I think that 
the, the biblical authors, you know, in line with the Holy Spirit, wrote their books so that people could understand them. So can can somebody read the Gospel of John or, or the book of First John or Revelation, not know the background and understand what he's saying? Mm-hmm. And my thing is, yeah, he can, or he or she is able to do that. Um, so yeah, f- so for my research, um, I didn't I didn't have to deal with with any of the background stuff because I'm I'm more worried about, and I don't want to say I mean it's, it just sounds elitist, and I understand that, but I'm more worried about the text itself and what the text is trying to communicate to me. Um, where I mean there are there weren't really many I don't think there weren't really many parts uh, within my dissertation that I had to because I had exhausted everything else within my research, that then I had to go to the background and say, okay, here it, it has to be something like this. I don't think I came across anything like that sure. um, because I was primarily focused within um, the text, the intertextual connections, or the echoes, the illusions, or however you want to label that. Um, that's where my, my research was primarily focused on. Yeah, no, absolutely. So... Um... <clears throat> I'm definitely hearing, yeah, a lot of a lot of already kind of leaning toward how does this affect us? Then, I mean, if if the ideal re- reader of the Revelation is somebody who knows their Old and New Testaments, um, yes, in some ways we're further removed from the context of them, but we also benefit from two thousand years of other readers of Revelation. Um, I, right. I think about. Paul's admonition to the Corinthians, are you, are you the only ones to whom the Word of God has come? Right, We, right. we benefit from reading Revelation alongside other readers who knew their Old and New Testaments. So let's, let's kind of move that way then. What are the implications? Uh, how does this affect the way that we read and interpret and even apply the message of the Revelation? Um, what, basically, what changes knowing your work, your, your, your findings here, your arguments here, if, I, if I've kind of encapsulated that, I've, I've taken that in, I've affirmed that and uh, been encouraged by it, and I open up to the end of my Bible at the book of Revelation, what's going to be different for me? Yeah, I think you begin to see more of the Bible within the book itself, rather than more of the possible images that may have been there, right? So, yeah, I mean, you, you pick up the book, and you begin to read it, and you see these illusions, or, or you see these images, like the, the woman, the harlot, or whatever, uh, and you, or, you know, or, or Babylon the Great, you know, like, you, you begin to see, okay, well, Babylon was mentioned in the Old Testament, so whoever this Babylon is, whether it's Rome, or, or you know, whether it's just this word that John decides to use, like, this is a, this is a bad nation, like, mm-hmm. these, these are bad people. And what happened to Babylon in the Old Testament? Well, the, the Lord rescues his people out of Babylon. He brings them out, you know, in, into these, you know, called the, the greener pastures or what, whatever. Sure. And that's what he's, okay, so for me, then that's, that's what the Lord is likely going to do for me. And so you keep reading, like, oh, yeah, there it is, right? Like, everybody has abandoned Babylon. Every, everybody has, has left her. And she is, she's basically rotting from the inside. But the Lord has redeemed his people. He has he has removed them, and now they they dwell with the Lamb. Um, and especially, man, you get to the end, and I think this is another connection. Like you you get to the end of, of Revelation, and what do you find? I mean, it's, you're basically at the beginning again. 
Mm. Right? So you, you get to the end of Revelation in, in 21 and 22, and you see that God is now dwelling with his people. There, there's this new heaven, and there, there's this new earth. There's this river of life, you know, the, an admonition that Jesus is coming back, and, and John's saying, yeah, you know, amen, come, come, Lord Jesus. Well, all those images are found in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2. Like, you, you're going back to the very beginning, where Adam and God and Eve walked with the Lord. There, there's no separation with them. They, they walk with him. You know, what, what, what are we going to do in the New Jerusalem? We're going to walk with the Lord. We're, we're going to see him, as John says in First John, we're going to see him as he is. There, we're having this, this river of life that God is, is there with us. So I think if, if somebody were to, to take my approach and to try their hardest because, I mean, Revelation is a tough book. and I don't want to say it's not. It is a very difficult book. It's very demanding. But it demands that you know your Bible. If you want to understand, and if you want to be the blessed reader that he says in Revelation 1, you've you got to know your Bible. And these images, I think, are meant to draw us again and again and again back to the biblical text so that, so that we're like the, the man from Psalm 1. We're the blessed man who meditates on God's Word day and night, that we're like this tree that's planted by streams of water. Uh, because we're grounded and we're rooted in the Scriptures, and we have this hope that as chaos is breaking out upon the earth, as the Lord is raining down judgment on these earth dwellers, um, as we're, you know, and then this gets into the whole eschatological views, but as, as whoever is here is witnessing this thing, that their confidence has been so grounded in the Scriptures that they know and they see the Lord is going to rescue me at some point. Mm. And then you apply that just to your own life today. It's, you know, and this is what I, I try to instill in my people. Like we, we need to be as, as Joseph was in Genesis 50. You know, what, what somebody may have meant for evil, God meant for good, but it, it takes Joseph years to get to that point, right? He's just, pretentious little boy who's tossed into this pit, and that's where this journey begins to get to that point in his life where he says, what, what you brothers meant for you, that the Lord meant for good. And so that we are so in, um, enveloped in the scriptures, and we so ground them in our hearts that no matter what, you know, what may happen, that we've got the word, and, and we trust the Lord. Um, and I think that reading Revelation and seeing what's going to happen one day um, should encourage us then to just to continue to trust the Lord because, you know, we know the end of the story, hmm. right? Christ is victorious. Christ reigns. We just have to wait it out yeah. and be faithful, you know. <clears throat> now, this is uh, this brings up an interesting kind of thought. I, so uh, help, help me kind of delineate here. I know what you're describing sounds a lot like an idealist view of revelation for our listeners this idea that revelation is mostly um mostly talking about general ways that god works amongst his people pointing to some historical realities like yeah. especially the second coming but other than that it's basically just like you said about babylon that god delivers his people from evil people um who mean to harm them now uh, here, here's maybe what I've picked up a little bit from you. Tell me if you would go this way or not. 
whether Babylon actually does have a specific historical referent or not in mm. God's intention in giving this vision to John to spread to the churches. Um, w- would you say that it's possible for Babylon to have a specific first century historical referent and for us to say, but the ideal reader still comes to this to learn how God always acts toward evil kingdoms and toward his suffering people? Would you say that we can separate those out? Or would you say that if this is the ideal reader of Revelation, then we have to approach it from an idealist standpoint? Does that make sense? Yeah, my... yeah that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I do think um, that Babylon has, for this example, I do think Babylon has a specific, or John has a specific image or, or group or nation in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't, I don't doubt that at all. And, and personally, I think it's Rome. Um, my hesitation to claim that, you know, as as this universal truth, or however you want to say it, mm-hmm. is the fact that John never says it. Sure. And so, and that that's my only hesitation because what what I found is that when we end up trying to identify who Babylon is, we miss the picture of the text. Mm-hmm. Because we're trying to figure out how much um, Rome corresponds with the biblical text. When John's point, I think, is who, regardless if if we truly understand who this is or not, like, these are this is a wicked nation. These are wicked people. Um, Chris uh, Seitz, he has a, a good commentary. Christopher Seitz does on, on the Book of Colossians, so an Old Testament scholar writing something on the New Testament. And there's always this this discussion of the Colossian heresy, um, and Sykes just bypasses it all. And he says, look, from within the text, we can't fully identify who these people are. We see the the things that they may do, or we see what they may believe, but we can't definitively know for sure. And it's just like, in my opinion, like the, the Gnostics in First John. Like, you know, that that's the big, it's the, the bad guys within First John, but... Because, you know, there's the discussion of what they believe is what matches up with the text and all this stuff. But John never directly identifies them as such. And so my my hesitation to do that is because the author doesn't tell us that this is Rome. He uses a code word for Babylon that I I do think has a a first-century image in mind. But it transcends that image, and it gives us just this opportunity to see... Okay, this is Rome was Babylon, but some somebody else worse than Rome is coming, right? Because this group, whoever this this group is, or this nation is, um, it ends it all. Like these people are so bad that it it's going to cause the return of Christ to come finally. You know, the time is finally up. Now this is here. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's almost as a both and. Uh, I, I'm just I'm always hesitant to say definitively. Yes, and we need to preach it this way. Because, again, you know, the, the reason I begin this program, this Ph.D. degree, is because I want to be the best Bible reader that I can, the best teacher that I can, knowing that I'm going to be held accountable on the day what I teach. Um, and I'm just I'm hesitant to label anything, really. And this may just be because I'm young and I need to, I need to learn more, which I recognize that's a weakness. Uh, I'm just hesitant to identify anything as definitive and say this is who it is for sure, because you know it, it may some some new discovery may happen and it may change. 
Sure. Um, so, and it's, I mean, it's almost like a second, for me, it's almost a secondary thing. Right. Like, okay. If it's Rome, it's great. If it's not, it's great. Like it's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change the meaning of the text. Sure. And I think that's part of the very, I mean, <laughs> essence of, of apocalypse, you know, is that we're going to talk in, um, you know, you say code, we're going to talk in allusions to past legitimate historical events, right? You know, the mm-hmm. Babylonian exile and other things, um, so that you get the point for your situation, churches, Christians, and Asia Minor, but in such a way so as not to let you think that God has changed the way he acts when the next tyrant comes around, right? right. It's uh, we're, we're taking aim at maybe Rome, you know, we're taking aim at this particular emperor, and that's where, you know, we talked about dating and how do we identify, is this Nero, is this Domitian, you know, is it, what does this look like? Um, but the point is we're taking aim at him, but we want to shoot past him as well, right? We, yeah, we want right. We want all readers, all all believers to, to read this and invite them to apply it to their life in a in a good way. And so what I think I hear you saying is that the ideal reader of Revelation is the Christian who knows his Bible. Right, exactly. And I would say that probably for any book as well. Sure. Um, but especially Revelation because of all of the different things that happen and where it ends, you know, where it ends up in the canon itself. Mm. Yeah. Man, no, I love it. This is a, this is an encouragement. I think that I hear a lot of um, just, you know, academic humility in that too, just saying, you know, let's let's not overstep what we can know here. Um, because what we have is the text. We have the text, and we want to read it in context, and we want to understand it in history, but such and such scholars' explanation of the historical background is not inspired and infallible. Um, The text is, and if the text doesn't want to identify these people, um, then that's on purpose, and we need to start there. So I appreciate that. Um, I think that there's a lot to be gained from that approach. I think I've I think I've seen and heard people taking more of this. Well, I'm sure there's a historical reference, you know, and I think that I can't I can't remember if it's Mounts or if it's Beale who calls his approach uh, eclectic idealism or something like it's, that. Yeah, it's Beale. Okay, it's Beale. and I mean I yeah. I just I I think that that is um, so helpful. Let's uh, let's get past some of these preliminary discussions. Not that they don't matter at all, but we're really missing the fruit here. Um, yeah. there's, there's, there's greener pastures to get to if we'll just pick one of these gates and go inside. And so, um, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And I think, uh, and I haven't read the book yet. I, I got it at ETS, but, um, you know, Craig Carter just put out that book, Interpreting Scripture with the Greek Tradition. And he was on, uh, the, that Credo podcast with, with Matt Barrett. Um, uh, and his, from what I listened to that interview, it sounds exactly like what I was trying to do. Mm. Like you, you, not not in the sense that like you get it fully away from the historical grammatical sense. I mean, you, you everybody has to do it to an extent, um, but you don't you don't simply let that override what the biblical text includes or excludes on purpose, mm-hmm. right? There, I mean, there again, there's reasons why the scriptures identify people. Like you, mean, you think of Paul just calling out people's names, and there's a reason why they don't. And sure. so I, I want to rest within the inspired scriptures and say, if he didn't say it, <laughs> I probably shouldn't either. You know? mm. I think, yeah, no, that's wise. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, to end on a on a much more serious note, 
I, I think that what Tolkien was getting at in that final scene, <laughs> I think the Eagles, yeah. Mount Doom, is communism. And um, <laughs> the, the Eagles were Apache helicopters. Right? I, I am Frodo. I mean... <laughs> and the Shire is uh, Kansas City Barbecue. I'm pretty sure. Uh, hey. Hey, I, now, at that point, I could agree with the Kansas City Barbecue. <laughs> Amen, man. Just yeah, uh, glad I we kept it to, safe. Yeah, I tried to put that in. Like, I presented a part of my dissertation at ETS, and, and I had that section in of, you know, Frodo and Sam's on Mount Doom, and it's the whole, you know, I'm glad you're here with me, Sam. Here's the end of all things. And, um, you know, and it doesn't end there, right? They've got to go back to the shower, and they've got all this reckoning that they've got to make through. And you see, really, I think just how sin infiltrates even the purest of, of cities. Um, and I tried to put that into my, my, <laughs> my chapter six introduction and I got it back and Dr. Madsen said, take all this out. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, uh, okay. well, when, you, when, when you go to publish it, you won't have to, you yeah, when have I to publish ask him. It, yeah, I'll just put it in there. <laughs> Hopefully you have a, a, a friendly editor. So. Yeah, That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, man, thanks for being on the podcast. This has been great. I'm excited. I I suspect that our listeners have now heard two episodes here because we, we've had a lot of good stuff to cover, and I really didn't want to sacrifice any of it for the sake of um, a, a few more minutes of time. So, man, I've enjoyed this discussion. Um, I appreciate your work here. appreciate your attitude about your work um, just as much. And so, man, I hope that the Lord continues to use you in Florine, in your in your studies, in your teaching, um, and excited to, to hear more about what God yeah. does through you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, man. Thank you, Travis. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.